In Philippians 4, verse number 10, Paul writes these final words of this little book, and he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit or your account. I have received full payment, and more, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. As amazing as the story, the, the letter of the Philippians is, it opens up with talking about being in Christ and it closes with that same thought. The whole letter, the whole Christian life is encapsulated in those two words, in Christ. Your Christian life is not primarily for Christ. It's not near Christ. It's not looking to Christ primarily. All of those things have their place, but the very atmosphere, the nature, the center of who we are as Christians is in our, what we call our positional identity. We are in Jesus Christ. And because we are in Christ, and that is where we are anchored, that is our foundation, that is our eternal position through his blood, because of that, we can experience everything Paul wrote about. We can experience joy. We can experience peace. We can experience uh, humility. We can experience unity. We can experience sacrifice, submission, and we can experience what it means to be partners with one another in this thing called the Christian life. The Lord has given us a ministry. Every single one of us has been assigned a part in the mission of God in our generation. And we are not a bunch of independent little mission-minded people running in our own siloed ways. We're actually part of a body and a family that is to move together. And so as Paul's closing out the letter, he's highlighting his previous partnership, his current partnership, and what he is kind of alluding to is his future partnership with the church at Philippi. And so from that, I want to talk to us about our relationships in the body of Christ. And I want to encourage you because you still have a pulse you still have a brainwave and a heartbeat, that means you are not done living for Jesus yet. And so I'm going to exhort all of us, including myself as I preach, to finish our race in faithfulness, to finish strong in the faith tonight. So let's go back up into these verses tonight. Let's start in verse number 10. And I'm just going to remind us what a spiritually mature heart looks like. Just because we are in Christ doesn't mean we have fully matured 
in Christ. We are all on a growth uh, process. There's not a single person that is a grace graduate tonight. We're all growing in grace. We all have room to grow. There's still a little bit too much of us in us and not quite enough Jesus in us. And so we are being matured. But let me tell you some marks that you can look for in your life. And this will help us to kind of know where we are. First of all, Paul's going to say in verse number 10 that a mature, a spiritually mature heart, it'll be thankful. Apart from gratitude, there is no spiritual maturity. If we haven't cultivated gratitude, we cannot rightfully say that we are spiritually mature. Look at what he says. Paul says, and remember, he's in prison. He's in the pit right now. He says, I rejoiced. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, you, the church at Philippi, you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So here he is, he's sitting in jail, he's finishing off this letter, and he wants to encourage them by telling them how they've encouraged him. I, I love this about Paul because all throughout this letter when he's in this terrible personal circumstance of being thrown in jail unjustly, he's been in jail for at least two years up to this point, uh, he has no hopes of getting out, he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen, Paul makes the whole letter others-focused. Now, let me just tell you how rare that is, because it's, it's the potentials in me, the potentials in you. When difficult circumstances, when pain, suffering, and loss hit us, when, when suffocating circumstances kind of pounce upon us, we can find ourselves turning inward, and we can make it all about us. And we, we, get, we, we don't rejoice at other people's blessings, we resent other people's blessings. We, we, don't, we don't celebrate with them, we get envious of them. We feel like at times like that, it's possible that, that we, we feel like their victory is our loss when it didn't have anything to do with us. And that's when a, a heart's gotten in a bad place. But conversely, a spiritually mature heart is able to look at others and, and communicate to them, I'm so blessed by you. I'm so blessed by you. I'm so thankful for you. Now, it's easy to be grateful towards God. We got some music. We don't, we don't sing our songs to each other. You know, we're not worshiping each other. We're not praising each other. We're conditioned as Christians to go upward with gratitude and go vertical with it and express thanksgiving to God because, after all, he is gloriously good. But the Bible actually says, hey, don't forget to honor those to whom honor is due. Don't forget to go horizontal with your gratitude, and that's what Paul's doing. And in doing so, he's also showing that he is thankful for how they had served him. He uses a word that's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It's translated in the ESV, revived. And he's saying there, I'm, I'm so blessed, I'm rejoicing that your care, your concern for me while I'm in jail has revived in this season. It's actually a word that is a botanical word, and it's used in non-biblical literature and it describes a perennial flower that buds after having been dormant for a while and so Paul says he's about to say it in the next verse he, he's acknowledging there was a time where the Philippians weren't able to help him but now Epaphroditus has shown up and he's brought some kind of blessing it's a financial blessing it's a care package it's a love offering and all of that and so Paul is not just the big shot apostle saying well about time after all, I'm the one who won you all to Jesus. Where y'all been for the last year? He's saying, thank you for coming alongside and being a blessing. And so he's showing that spiritual maturity. But a spiritual mature heart will not only be thankful, it's going to be satisfied. Verse number 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Um, this is, when I read that verse, I'm going to tell you, I'm not where I used to be on that but I'm nowhere near where I need to be. 
content in whatever state he finds himself. Whatever the situation, Paul said, I have learned how to be content, how to be at rest, how to be unmoved inwardly by what's going on outwardly around me. And he had that easy spirit about him. I love bumping into people like that in the kingdom. There's just some people you get around and you're like, when you're around them long enough and you have never seen them get bent out of shape, you've never seen them lose their cool, you've never seen them fall apart over something that's silly or simple, they, they don't yell at people or honk or do Christian hand gestures, non-Christian hand gestures in traffic, they, they're just, they're, they're easygoing, and, and Paul's saying here, hey, I, I want you to know, I'm so blessed that you sent that love offering and it was so awesome that it revived after a while that, that you couldn't help me. He said that in verse 10. He said, you wanted to help me, but I know you couldn't for a while. He said, but just want to let you know, don't feel guilty about that. Paul said, I've learned in whatever state that I find myself, I can just be content. That is spiritual maturity, friends. Um, I don't think that we can pick and choose these, by the way, and say, well, I'm mature, but I'm not satisfied, or I'm mature, but I'm not thankful. No, I think we need to be growing in all of these things, and that contentment is only possible by us centering ourselves in the person of Jesus. Again, coming back to that in Christ uh, phrase, being in Jesus, not for Jesus, because I'm going to tell you, if you're, if, you're, if you're living for Jesus, but you're not abiding in Jesus, you're going to burn out. You're going to get frazzled, you're going to get frayed, you're going to lose it, you're going to start acting in ways where your flesh is coming to the forefront and the Holy Spirit is just kind of in the corner waiting for you to break. And, and what Paul's saying here is at this juncture in his life, he's learned to live. He learned it. Watch that. It's not a Holy Ghost dose. It's not something you get a whammy shot from heaven and all of a sudden you're Mr. or Mrs. content Christian. It's not that at all. You learn it. How do you learn it? By being stretched, by being broken. By all of the things that Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 11, where he's giving his testimony about his weakness, his brokenness, his terrible circumstances he went through. That's how he learned. That's how he matured. And so one of the things that we've got to realize, and we have to realize it in the moment, it's always easy to look back and realize it, but what helps us is to realize in the moment when we're in a cycle where God is just pressing us, circumstances are coming against us it might even be that the enemy himself is coming fast and furious after us we've got to realize okay this is my opportunity to decrease the opportunity for Jesus to increase in me I'm not going to tr trust in my flesh Paul said in my flesh there dwells nothing good I'm going to learn what it means to be stretched by the hand of God and when you go through seasons like that he starts, he starts imputing to you or imparting to you a contentment of your spirit that, that over time it becomes spiritual maturity. How many of you can look back, you don't have to raise your hand, you can look back on things that used to derail you in previous years of your walk with Jesus and now when those same types of things come to you, you're just like, whatever, yeah, I've been there, done that, Jesus has brought me through it. You ought to be able to look back on times like that. And one of the glorious things about testings and trials and intense seasons of burden even, and brokenness, is that when the Lord brings you through that valley that feels like the shadow of death, he brings you through it, you come out stronger. And so when lesser tests come against you later, you have already been given a strength that is greater than any lesser test. 
And so we actually are built up through these trials, and that's how Paul could say in verse 11, I, I'm, I'm not trying to get a love offering here from you, Philippians. I, I'm just telling you that um, whatever situation I'm in, you don't have to sweat it that you couldn't get an offering to me. I've learned how to be content. I just think that's awesome. So verse number 12, also a spiritually mature heart is going to look like this. It's going to be trusting. Paul unpacks it a little bit further. Let's remember who's writing this. He's not writing a Hallmark card. This is a man that lived this stuff. He said, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, this is where he's getting into his testimony, and the Philippians would have been familiar with the testimony of Paul, but he's not just speaking in metaphor here. He knows how to be brought low. He's low right now. He's in a low circumstance. He's in prison, not for the first time. This is a man who had been mercilessly beaten by both the Jews and by the Gentiles because he's an ambassador for Christ, and they both hated him for different reasons. This is a man who had lost his reputation, as we learned about in chapter number two. This is a man who had lost family. This is a man who had lost his wealth, his earnings. He knows how to be brought low, but he also, I love this, he says, I know how to abound. So we're not told a lot about Paul's abundant seasons, but Paul is referring to times where God was pouring out his blessings. There may have been seasons where Paul, as the apostle, had every material need met, never had to miss a meal. It could have been even while he was at the Philippians uh, when he planted the church at Philippi, because that's a wealthy area. Lydia was the first convert in that city, the first convert on the continent of Europe, and she was a uh, apparently a well-off seller she was a, a, a sold purple fabric and she had enough money to where she had a house and that church met in her home so there were times where Paul had been showered with blessing he says yeah I know how to be content in that most of us would think well yeah I mean how easy is it to be content but here's the thing Paul was never content in what he had he was always content in who he was in Jesus there's a bunch of folk that can get real close to Jesus and be tight with Jesus when all hell's breaking loose against them. But when they're blessed, they don't know how to be content in Jesus anymore because they're content in what they've got. They're content in their money. They're content in their strength. They're content in their popularity. They're content in their fame. They're content in their Cadillac Escalade. They're content in their gated community. They're content in all of this other stuff. And the reality is, as Paul is saying here, I, I'm no longer moved when I'm in the dark, hard season, and I'm no longer moved when I'm abundantly blessed because the bottom line is life for Paul was not consisting in the abundance of things he possessed or the things that he lost. You know how he was able to stay steady, Eddie? Because Jesus is faithful. Jesus is constant. Jesus is the God who never changes. There's no shadow, no turning with him. And so when Paul's face to face with Jesus, and Jesus is calm, and Jesus is content, and Jesus is peaceful, Paul is imbibing that off of Jesus, and so it doesn't matter what's going on around him. So when I read that again, I mean, I'll just speak for myself. You'll have to gauge your own heart. I'm like, yeah, I, I need to grow in that area. I need, I need to be trusting at that kind of level. Verse number 13 most famous verse in all of the book of Philippians, and most of the time we quote it completely out of context. You see, that mature heart is going to be trusting, satisfied, and thankful, but it is going to be confident. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Of course, he's speaking of Jesus there. Um, 
It was the first verse I ever memorized in scripture because I had been delivered out of a, a lifestyle of addiction. I, I just needed to know I could stay clean. That was kind of my goal for the first you know, month of my Christianity. And I, it was such a short verse, so it worked well with my uh, rejuvenating brain. My brain cells were coming back to me, and I was like, I can memorize this when I just remember saying it. And I just knew that through Christ, I could do it because he would strengthen me. The reality is, is although that verse was very helpful, that verse wasn't really talking about that. Paul, in context here, is saying this. He's saying, no matter if I have a lot or no matter if I don't have anything, no matter if I am hungry because I can't even find food or whether I'm sitting at a king's feast, no matter what I have, whatever my assignment is, whatever the Lord has called me to, Whatever the purpose of God over my life is, I can do it. I can do it. Now, I'm going to get bold with all of us here. Every single one of us has some level of intentional assignment from God on our lives. Now, the problem is, is we think neon, we think headlines, we think kaboom, and, and sometimes it's not as dramatic. I mean, none of us have the lifestyle of the Apostle Paul, but we all have Jesus, therefore, he loves to influence people through his bride, so that means we all have a purpose. And I'm going to tell you something, I can't do my wife's purpose. I can't, but I can do mine. She can't do yours. You can't do the person next to you. You know why? There's no grace for you to live somebody else's purpose out. And so what Paul is teaching here is no matter what's going on externally, no matter what we have or what we've lost, no matter what we're hungering for or what we're filled with, no matter what that is, the bottom line is I can do what God has called me to do. He will strengthen me. Jesus Christ will strengthen me no matter what's going on on the outside. So do you know what that does for us? And this is important because we live in a, in a victimhood generation where everybody's got a reason why they can, they can lose it life. And we play the blame game. We're blaming this person and this person and this person and this person. And that's epidemic in our culture, and it has been for about 20 years. For the Christian, that is not an option. Because Jesus Christ is the resurrection. And when he defeated death, the greatest opposing force against humanity, he conquered the greatest power that will ever come against us. And therefore, when we step into his life, he is able to help us overcome every lesser power that comes against us. So you can win at work. You may not like the people you work with. Your boss might be a first-class jerk. You, you may be getting treated unfairly down there. It may be legitimate, but I want to tell you something. If that's where your assignment is, you can not only endure it, you can actually go in there and joyfully endure it. You can triumph in it. You can magnify Jesus in it. Say, well, Jeff, I lost my position. I lost my raise. Well, Paul knew how to lose and be content. And friends, nobody gets off scot-free. We're all going to lose some things in this life. And what Paul's saying here is, you can do this. You can do all the things that are required of you to fulfill your assignment. You can do it because Jesus Christ himself is in you. You're in him, and he's strengthening you. So that's what a spiritually mature heart, those are four aspects of a spiritually mature heart. Confident that you can fulfill the assignment given to you, trusting that no matter what, um, you, you can stay content in the Lord, satisfied in the Lord, and you can be thankful. And so, friends, those are things that, yes, God empowers but he calls us to intentionally pursue that kind of heart. 
a thankful heart, a satisfied heart, a trusting heart, and a confident heart. Now, let's get a little bit further, because as Paul's wrapping up, he kind of switches lanes in verses 14 through 16. He goes back to talking to them about their ministerial, ministerial partnership that they had with him. Now, let me give you a little background here. It's very different in our day. Um, in Paul's day, there was no church building. He is an apostle who happened to know how to pastor. He happened to know how to disciple. He had a prophetic gifting on his life. I mean, he was really all of the fivefold. Paul had all of that. But primarily, he's an apostle, and so his calling was to go in places where the gospel hadn't been preached and to bring the gospel to win converts, to establish groups of believers that would typically meet in houses. And so they would, that's how the church began. It was not just one big building where everybody came. That didn't come until centuries later. And initially, it was people meeting in homes. And so that's what he would do. But listen, he, he either had to earn his money or he was 100% dependent on people supporting his ministry. And so there were times where he would work and he made tents. That's where we get the phrase, a tent maker ministry. He would work and then minister and work and then minister. There were other times where churches would support him. So he's going to talk about that here. And this is where we learn not only how the kingdom works with all of us investing financially into the kingdom, but also the, the, the paradigm, the dynamic between leaders and those that follow those leaders. So first of all, when we look at these relationally healthy partnerships, we're going to see that the, the Philippians were concerned for their leader. Verse number 14. I love this. This is amazing to me because you just don't see this anymore. Paul, Paul says very transparently, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Paul is so humble, so transparent. He's not the big shot apostle that can't admit a need, can't, can't make a request be known. He's not the guy that hides behind this veneer of having it all together and I, I don't have any needs and you poor people can't help me. Paul was the kind of leader that depended on the Lord, but when he had relationships with people, he knew he could go to them when he had either a personal financial need or he had a need for the ministry. And almost always for Paul, it was a need for the ministry. Right now he's in prison, so there really isn't a big ministry need. But in, remember, in a Roman prison, they didn't bring you three square meals a day. If you didn't have somebody putting money in, in, in your hands, you didn't eat. And a lot of the Roman prisoners, I mean, thousands upon thousands of them, died while they were awaiting trial because they would die of starvation because nobody would feed them. And so Paul has received from the Philippian church this love offering that Epaphroditus brought. And look, I just love what he says. He's like, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And, and speaking from a leadership paradigm, let me just tell you, the immense amount of expectation and pressure on church leaders to never show vulnerability, to never acknowledge a need, whether it's a, a relational need or a material need, a financial need, a, a prayer need. There is a ridiculous amount of artificial separation between the person on the platform and the person in the chairs. I, I remember, I've gone through this, I, I remember one time getting very transparent and broken in a sermon during an incredibly different time, a difficult time years ago. A lot of problems in, in the church back then, and I just got raw in the pulpit and was pleading for something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was very raw and personal. And I remember about two weeks later, I had a meeting with a guy that I thought we were friends, and he told me that he and his wife and his two young children were leaving the church. And I asked him why, because it blindsided me. He said, um, 
Pastor, that thing you did a couple of Sundays ago, that, listen, we, we can't follow a leader who's, who's struggling like that. And I thought to myself, oh, I probably don't ever want to do that again. And I remember going through about another year of just trying to have it all together in the pulpit because I, I wanted to present an artificial strength so it didn't unsettle the people that wanted me to be Superman. And all of that is fake. It's completely fake. By the way, there wasn't much Holy Spirit movement in those couple of years here in this room. It, it was tough. But the, the deal was this. They wanted an artificially strong leader, and I didn't want them to be disturbed by the actual weakness that was going on inside of me. And so what it did is it set up this fake thing where it's like, hey, don't get real with us. You know, if you get too real, we'll leave. And so that happens, not with Paul, though. Paul, Paul calls it his trouble. He, Paul said, yeah, I'm, I'm in jail. I'm hungry. I'm in Rome. I can't get to you. I'm still, I've still got an apostle's heart. An apostle, he doesn't want to sit in a cozy office, much less a prison cell. And so Paul is saying to them, I want to tell you that in our partnership, I'm noting how kind you've been to me. But let's Listen, I know this is just so elementary. I don't want to bore you tonight, but I also don't want to try to um, you know, make this stuff overly dramatic when this is about as shoe leather as it, you can get with our Christianity. Um, you, don't, you don't have to have 14 uber-anointed spiritual gifts to be kind to people. To be kind. To, I mean, seriously, to be kind. So, Jeff, we, we, what does that mean in the kingdom? What do you mean, what does it mean? It's to be nice, to be genuine, to be kind, to prefer others. To, to take a step back from the cutthroat competitive culture that we live in that's, you know, willing to clang, climb and clamor all over people just to get to the top. That's not Jesus. That's not the heart of the Lord. And so when it comes to the point where sometimes, guys, sometimes Christianity is not a 55-minute sermon. Tonight it is. But sometimes, sometimes Christianity is you listening to the Holy Spirit and he nudges your heart and you're thinking, I think she has a need. And you actually go to her and say, you know, I was just, I was just a sense that the Lord was prompting my heart. Are you okay? Is there anything going on in your life? Now, if somebody comes to you like that, then it's your moment to be authentic and transparent and say, because we like to say, oh, no, bless God, I'm fine. Hallelujah. Yeah. I was reading the book of Hezekiah this morning. It really ministered to my soul. And, you know, we just do all this churchy stuff. And, and what, we, what we actually need to do is when somebody comes to us in that moment in kindness and it's the Holy Spirit, and if we actually have a need, then, then we drop our walls. And we, we um, affirm their kindness by saying, yeah, if that's the Lord speaking through this person, this is, a, this, is a, this is a kingdom moment. Paul did that. And I just want to tell you this, listen, we, we want to be strong leaders. I, I, I mean, I tell you, we want to be strong leaders. But you do, do realize that ultimately we were broken, lost, dead, and damned sinners who needed Jesus. And when he saved us, his, his calling on our life happened to be in leadership and kingdom leadership. But we still need the same grace you need. We still need to come on, somebody get in here. We still need the Holy Spirit. We still need the Word of God. We still need him to purify us. We are not glorified. We are in the process of being sanctified. So there's going to be times where your leaders might look pathetic. Don't judge us. Love us. Be kind to one another. And Paul said, 
he affirmed that in them. So they were concerned for their leader. And they also, they were invested in the advance of the kingdom, verse 15. He says, and you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, that's when he was first starting out planting churches. He said, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. What does that mean? Okay, so Paul moves into the area of Philippi. It's on the continent of Europe. And the first, first person he went to Jesus was Lydia and her friends that were down by the river doing a prayer meeting, I think. They were doing their best to find God. And Paul brings the gospel. They get saved. The church is born there. I, I mentioned early on in the series, that would have been a, a wild church to be a part of. You got this wealthy businesswoman. You got the Philippian jailer, the guy who would, I mean, he got saved. Remember, he got radically saved, the earthquake, and uh, Paul and Silas singing in the jail, and the chains fell off, and this guy gets saved. So you got this rough and gruff Philippian jailer who beat people for a living, and then he gets saved. Then Lydia, the wealthy, astute businesswoman, gets saved. And then you got the little demon-possessed teenage girl that Paul cast the demon out of. And that's the first three members of that church. I, I just love that, man. I was like, man, God does things differently than we do. But the reality is, is he moves on from Philippi, and he goes about 95 miles, and he, he comes to Thessalonica. And, and God says, I want, you to, I want you to find converts, make converts here, and plant a church here. So when Paul gets to Thessalonica, he's broke. He doesn't have any money. And so he, he says here, no church entered into partnership with me in giving, receiving, except you, Philippians. So if you're in a place, and you're, you're, Lorna, we talked about this earlier, and this is constant in ministry. If you have a leadership position in ministry, you, you have to raise funds, but you have to do it the kingdom way. It's not about marketing. It's not about manipulation. You have to trust God, but you have to make the needs known also. And so it, it's just a sticky thing. Money, raising funds for kingdom works because of all the scandals and stuff, it's just kind of awkward in our generation, but it was never meant to be. But even the great amazing, miracle-working Apostle Paul went through a season where he only had one church supporting him. So if you're a missionary and you're raising support or you're an intercessory missionary, if you've got a parachurch ministry like to, to Moldova and, and the things that you guys are doing, I know how it is. You constantly have to, even the Apostle Paul said, yeah, I remember when I couldn't, I couldn't find a dollar I'm the Apostle Paul. He would never say it that way, but he's the Apostle Paul, and, and he only had one church that was supporting him. Maybe that's one of those times where Paul's saying, yeah, I know how to be brought low. But there were other times when he said, I know how to abound. The good thing about the Philippians were that they were so consistent. They were with him from the very beginning. Look in verse 16. And they were consistent in their follow-through. He said, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. We would say time and time again. So it wasn't just that they threw him a token love offering on the way out of town and forgot about him. They loved him because of what he had invested in them. What, what they, he had invested in them, they, their hearts, they had a heart relationship. And so when Paul's 100 miles away, and that's nothing to me and you, but in Paul's days, they, no email, you know, no GPS, no, no, no Uber, nothing. And so they had to stay in touch to find out what he needed. And he said, y'all just kept supporting me which I just think is an awesome thing. Listen, I want to be very clear here. Um, there is not a Christian in our culture that gets a free pass on giving. The danger is, is that so often we have heard 
the call to give, I'm talking financially here, but we have heard it as law, thou shalt give. And, and, it, and it, it is even presented by preachers and teachers in a way that's not really conducive to a heart of generous giving. But the reality is also the other side of the coin is that we're living in a generation that um, can't discern between their need and their greed. And, and so they think everything that they have agreed for is now a need. And so a lot of the kingdom, a lot of us Christians are, are just pouring money into stuff that doesn't have anything to do with building other people up. It doesn't have anything to do with advancing the gospel. And listen, I'm not, listen, take a vacation, do all that stuff, have a house, put a picture on the wall, paint it, you know, have a, a decent transportation. I'm not, I'm not saying that those things are wrong, but what I'm saying, it's wrong for us to attain all of those things. And then when it's time to give unto the Lord's work, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're putting dents in our quarters and dimes and nickels because we just hold on to them so hard. Listen, you're, you're not going to take any of it with you. The only money you'll ever see again is what you store up in heaven by faith by releasing it now. Everything else I spend is a loss. The only thing that is going to have eternal lasting value, and this is a chance for me to either believe Jesus as a Christian or not believe Jesus as a Christian, he said that what we sow into the kingdom is stored up for us in heaven, that there is reward. And that's the only thing, that is the only lasting return we get on our finances. And so I'm going to encourage us all, when we think about giving, it's not how we started. It's how are we finishing in our giving? The church at Philippi was giving at the beginning, and then when Paul got, had nobody else helping him, they kept giving, and he was, they sent time and time again. So it's a great challenging question right now. I've had people over the years say, well, Jeff, we don't really give, but we serve. Come on. It's not either or. And then you got people that give a lot, and they're like, yeah, we don't, we, we don't serve, but we'll, we'll write a check. And I was like, wait, wait a minute, man. This is not a technicality we're trying to check off of our to-do list so we're nice, neat, tidy Christians. This is about a heart of love. This is about Jesus being worthy of it all. This is about his name being spread into the generations so that every ear will hear that all nations, tribes, and tongues will have uh, an opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ before he comes again. And that stuff's not going to happen in a vacuum. I believe in the sovereignty of God, probably to the point where it makes some of you nervous. I believe in that. But the sovereignty of God should never leave us kind of kicked back and just saying, well, God's going to save who he's going to save. You don't find that in the Bible. You find passionate Christians sacrificing, sowing, and speaking for the glory of Jesus. There's a reason why Lorna is going to the Philippines basically as a one-woman show with her team and pouring everything she can to the Philippines, not for the first time. There's a reason. It's not so she can have her name on a banner stretched out in Manila. It's the reason for it is because her heart is filled with love for the one that saved her. And not all of us are supposed to go, but I'm going to tell you, all of us have an opportunity in our sphere to serve, and all of us have a call to give. And so let's finish well in that area. Verse 17. I like what Paul says here. Verse 17. They were remembered and they were rewarded. This is what relationally healthy partnerships look like. He's a smart leader. He says, I'm not looking for the gift. He's referring to the gift that they sent, and he's saying, I'm not trying to get you to send another one. He's not fishing for a love offering here. He says, but I am seeking the fruit that increases to your credit. 
Now let's just pause there for a minute. Paul is saying, he's already told us, I, I know how to live with, when the offerings don't come in. I, I know how to go without. I know how to struggle. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to roll when it's all coming in and it's just nonstop and I'm, I'm rolling in financial blessing. Paul said, I can live with that. It doesn't move me either way because Jesus is my center. Jesus is my anchor. He says, so I'm not trying to get you to send another gift. He's being very clear. Even 2,000 years ago, leaders were uh, conscious of the fact that what they say might be misinterpreted as manipulation. Paul's, not, Paul's saying, I'm not trying to get you to send more. He's saying, I want you, when you cross over into glory, I want there to be reward waiting on you. I want there to be fruit that you're sowing now, you're planting now, that you will harvest in heaven. Now, friends, there is a whole series of messages we could do on, on the Lord's um, emphasis on reward. You will be shocked at how much Jesus talked about reward. We don't like to talk about it because we're like, oh, no, no, no. We don't need to talk about reward. The Lord himself is the reward. Well, that's fine. That, that's great. But Jesus wanted us to know about reward. Jesus motivated a lot with the emphasis on rewards. And Paul's doing the same thing. Paul's like, we're actually going to stand before the Lord one day. And there's this amazing possibility that we stand before the Lord and he does an instantaneous, complete, comprehensive analysis of our entire Christian life. And in that moment, it's crystallized and there is an, a, a reward, a proportional reward associated with it. And do you know it's possible to stand before the Lord of glory and have your own mind blown at the reward that he gives you? I, I think that the ones that are rewarded in heaven are going to be like, I cannot believe you're rewarding me, but it's in the heart of the Lord. Remember, he said, it's better to, to give than to receive. That's not just a lesson for us. He's saying, that's what I like to do. I like to give. And so one of the joys of Jesus is going to be when his bride is complete and we're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. It's his joy and his delight to give and reward. And in some fashion, those rewards are going to, to translate into a capacity in the kingdom. I don't have time to hit this right now, but I want you to know something. Right now, you and I are living lives that determine our capacity to rule and reign in the kingdom. The Bible speaks, Jesus gave a parable one time, and it was a stewardship parable. And the, 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 the practical application of the parable is some people wisely invested what he had given to them. Other people did not wisely invest, and some barely invested, and some didn't invest at all. But at the end of that parable, Jesus goes to this place of reward, and he says, to the one that invested wisely and enthusiastically and risked it, here you will have rule over these cities. And then he said to the one that maybe could have done better but still did better than nothing, he said, you'll have these five cities. And then he says to the one that didn't invest at all, the, the, the application is, is you completely wasted what I gave you. You've lost your reward. And the, the, the emphasis is that, friends, right now, listen, we need to rethink eternity. You're not going to heaven to float on a cloud and play a harp for all of eternity. That's not, that's not going to be it. Jesus Christ is coming back to planet Earth, and the saints are going to rule and reign with him. And that, that means literally that we will have dominion, and there will be people born during the millennium, and there will be government with King Jesus flowing down through his saints, and we're going to govern. The Bible says we're going to judge angels. And all of our capacity to operate in the kingdom is being determined by how we're living our life today. 
That'll get where you live. And so when we're thinking about this, I'm thinking, right now, the Son of God has given us the ability, in part, to determine our eternal capacity in the uh, eternal state, in the kingdom and then unto the eternal state. That's motivating. Say, well, Jeff, nobody notices me. Nobody, nobody is in my corner right now. Just do it as unto the Lord. Say, well, Jeff, does it really matter? Let me give you a verse, Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. You hear that? God couldn't be God if he ever forgot what you did for him. That would be unjust, and if he was unjust, he can't be God. So the flip of that is God is so just and righteous that he will never forget anything you have ever done for him in ministering to what? To the saints. It's not just vertical. How many of you know right now that God doesn't need our help? He's not saying, I've got these unmet needs. I wish somebody down on earth would meet my needs. That's, he's never said that. So do you know how you serve God? By serving the person next to you. We serve God by serving each other. And God says, I've got a perfect record of everything you've ever sacrificed, everything you've ever invested, anything you've ever released. I've got it. And I am going to justly reward you for all of it. And so tomorrow, wake up with that as, as fuel for your purpose in this life. So let me do these last few verses, and then we're going to finish up here in just a few moments. Verses 17 through 23 just take us back to this firmly anchored gratitude. Here's what it looks like. He commended their sacrifice. Paul, again, is still talking about what they had done for him. He says this. This is concerning the offering they sent him through Epaphroditus. He said, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. And he, and he calls them this. He pictures them as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Um, I know I kind of just hit this, but I really, I want our minds to be renewed. I want the spirit of our minds to be renewed in how God views our, our service, our financial investments in the kingdom, our relational investments, they mean something to him. We don't do it because we're trying to get the guilt thing off our back. We do it because we're justified and accepted and complete in Jesus and we're eternally loved and we're empowered and indwelt and equipped. We've been transformed. We're, we're being made into the image of Jesus. All of, all of the most important stuff has, 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 has been done by him. He paid for it. He supplied it. He brought it to us. We believed. We continue to believe. So he continues to transform us. And so we're not trying to fulfill a checklist. I don't know if anybody in the room, I actually feel like a, the pulse of the Lord on this right now. I don't know if any of you are still just dragging under the, you've got to perform more, you've got to perform more, you've got to perform more. And the more you perform, the more you're loved, the more you're worth, the more God is going to, to smile on you. And that's such a dreadful and impossible place for us to, to live ongoingly as Christians. That's not the will of the Lord. What's amazing is, yes, he wants us to serve. Yes, he, he, he calls us to give. 
But the motivation is one of love and trust, not guilt and fear. And when we, when we move in guilt and fear, unfortunately, it generates results, but ultimately it leaves our hearts empty. And so what is Paul doing here? He's, he's getting them to actually think about God's perspective on the offering they sent him. And so how does he typify it? He says, it's full. He says, it's more than full. In other words, guys, thank you. You have sent this thing to me in prison in Rome, and I have right here at this moment, I've got everything I need and more. Imagine if you're the person in Philippi, and, and you don't know how things are going. There's no email updates. There's nothing. You're just waiting on the messenger. And the messenger comes back, and he says, here's Paul's letter. And you read that point, and you're thinking, that day you made that sacrifice where you, you took out of your meager resources but you sewed it into Paul's needs and it hurt when you gave it. And then here you are six months later and the messenger comes back and Paul's saying, thank you. All my needs were met by what you did. That brings such a deep satisfaction. He says, I'm well supplied. And then he does this. He uses Old Testament um, imagery. He says, the offering that you gave was fragrant it was a sacrifice that has been accepted by God and it brought pleasure to him. And so in the Old Testament, you're well aware that they would have certain sacrifices that were, were burnt on the altar. And when those sacrifices would go up, the common belief was that the fragrance and the smell went into the nostrils of God and it brought pleasure to God. So Paul takes that Old Testament imagery that's highly Jewish, brings it into a New Testament Gentile congregation, and he's simply, he's saying this, your, your offering to me was as unto the Lord. And yes, I'm helped and I'm taken care of, but I want you to know beyond you meeting my need, God saw what you did and he is pleased with you for doing that. I don't know if you feel that way when you give. I hope that you do. I hope it's not like writing your Georgia power bill or you know, paying forward the payment for the car or your mortgage or whatever. That literally, I'll give you this pastoral instruction here. I, I still write a check. I know I'm like old-fashioned, but I still write a check to the church and other ministries. I always write a check. And when I do, I just hold it in my hand. And I just say, Lord, thank you for all that you've given me. Thank you, Lord, for blessing me. I had a roof over my head this week. I had food in my belly. Lord, I've got clothes on my back. Oh, we, we are blessed in many ways. And God, I want to say thank you. And Lord, thank you for letting me invest in the kingdom. Thank you, God, that this actually makes a difference here at home and overseas. I actually do that because I know if I don't, my habit's going to be, okay, Newbridge Church, X amount of dollars. Next month, Newbridge Church, X amount of dollars. Okay, task, missions, X amount of dollars. And it just becomes like any other financial check that we write. So I'm going to encourage you. You can even do it with text to giving, however you give. I don't care how you give, but take a moment. Honor the Lord with it. I'm going to tell you, it'll change that whole dynamic of how you give. And then verse number 19 in the last couple. Let me give you verse number 19. This one's a hard one for some to hear, maybe not in this room, but this message will go on podcast, it'll go on television, and we need to be very clear. This is one of the most abused verses in all the book of Philippians. As Paul reminded them of God's faithfulness, he said this, 
My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This verse is not for everybody. People will quote this verse as a blanket promise to God to meet every need they have. And they forget who it's written to. They forget the verses that came before it. Who is that written to in context? It's written to Christians that are actively, sacrificially engaged in releasing offerings that are pleasing and acceptable unto the Lord. And if we get to that place where we are engaged in releasing sacrificially and consistently, then we ought to lay our heads down at night. And when we know we got a need coming up tomorrow, we can lift our hands to heaven and say, Lord, I am standing in the middle of your will when it comes to giving. I am, I am doing all of my finances in a way that seek to honor you. And I know that that need that's coming around the corner, you're going to meet that need and every one of my needs. Thank you, Lord, for blessing me. I'm going to bed. Good night. I'm going to be, I'm going to be very strong here on this one because there's a lot of people that have gotten frustrated with the Lord. I, I can remember one occasion years ago uh, with a very angry woman in my office in Duluth. She was mad at God because she was constantly broke. And she was quoting this verse to me. I didn't know anything about her finances. I didn't want to know anything about it. But she was heartbroken, angry, and I, I just sensed spiritual danger. Her heart was getting hard. And so I, I, I literally said, well, tell me, tell me, what you got coming in and what you got going out. And she listed all of her income and all of her expenses, and I recognized she never said anything about giving into the kingdom. So I just asked her. I said, now, what are you, what are you giving? Are you tithing? Are you giving? And she goes, no, I can't afford to do that. And I remember in that moment, I had the most simple answer for her, but I thought to myself, I don't know if she can receive this thing. So I took her back to the verse, verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. She thought God had failed her. And I had to take her through the previous five verses and say, that verse number 19 is only for people that are living in the spirit of verses 15 through 18. And ma'am, I'm sorry, you, you've, you've, you've disqualified yourself from being able to claim that verse, but you can change it today. Um, the, the end of the story doesn't matter, but the reality is this. I'm, I'm just going to be bold with you. I'm not a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher. preacher. I, I don't necessarily think that God is you know, doing dances in heaven when we are constantly broke and poor, and especially if it's because we're unfaithful in our giving. But this is the one thing that I promise you God will bless in Christians' finances. When we first fruits, not leftovers, but when the number one thing that grounds and anchors our finances is, first of all, what can I sow into the kingdom? That literally, how, where we live, what we buy, what we drive, where we go, how we vacation, all ought to be anchored in our call to, and, and our commitment to knowing we want to honor God with our finances. And when we do that, man, I can breathe. I, I can just exhale. Now, I've made some boneheaded financial decisions in my Christian life. I have. But I'm going to tell you, I have watched God honor this because I've never, ever um, bowed to the temptation to just kind of call a timeout on my sowing into the kingdom. For me, that spells financial catastrophe. So if you're in a place right now where you're constantly struggling and you're not giving, I'm going to take the mystery out of it. That's why. 
It, you, you say, well, Jeff, let me pray about it. No, I'm just telling you, the Bible is very clear that God can't bless our financial hypocrisy. So when we're, when we're expecting him to meet all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, but at the same time, we're being disobedient in the very foundational, fundamental things he says about giving, when we're saying, God, bless my finances, and God's saying, I'm sorry, I'm omnipotent, but I can't do that. I can't bless disobedience. And so, Jeff, well, what do we do? Well, this is what you do. There's a couple of things, but one is you get into a moment of repentance. That, that's the part that needs to happen first. You say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've leaned under my own understanding according to my own wisdom. I've, I've done things according to something other than your heart and your word. I repent. I'm sorry. And then comes the challenging part of welcoming God into your finances, and you just have to take some time to get some things straightened out. The key is you repent, and then you welcome the blessing of God to come back in. When I got saved at age 24, I probably had a credit score of 12. I mean, it was terrible. It goes up to 800 in case you don't know. Mine was probably like 12 or 3. It was terrible. Drunks don't pay their bills. That was me back in the day. And so I, I had this abysmal, and, but when I got saved, I wanted to honor God with that. I couldn't even get a checking account. My thing was this. I'm trying to get done. I'm almost done. You can leave if you're done, but I'm, I'm going to go just a minute more. I, I thought if I've got checks in my checkbook, I can write them. That was my attitude at 20 years old. It didn't matter I didn't have any money in the bank. I had checks. So God had to clean up a bunch of my mess financially, a bunch of it, but he did. But he didn't do it until I repented. And that happened right after I got saved. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. Listen, there's people in this room who could stand up right now and they could testify better to me, better than I can, about how God has so honored and blessed their finances through the simple faithfulness and act of being generous and consistent in their giving. And what Paul said is when you get to that place, you can claim Philippians 4.19. You can, you can write it all over your finances. And so at the end, he says this, and I'm just going to read them. I love how he closes the book of Philippians. He says, to our God, and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, all of the glory goes to God forever and ever and ever. So be it. God, the glory is yours. And then he says to them, greet all of the Christians there in Philippi, verse 21. He says, and the Christians that are with me, they're greeting you. And all of the saints, are, do you see him getting like in this love fest? He's just saying, he's like, oh, we're family in the scene. Tell our brothers we said hey, and our brothers here are saying hey, and tell the, greet all of those, and then he gives this. He just drops it, and he ends the book with it. He says, all of the saints that are with me in Rome, they greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, I'll just give you this, and I'm done. It's a raw ending to a long series. Um, the gospel started getting into Caesar's household. This was not happy Caesar's. This was, we're going to kill all the Christians in a few years, kind of Caesar. But in his household, the gospel was getting in. Could have been family, more than likely servants and those that worked in the government. It's the first mention in Scripture of the gospel beginning to pour its fragrance into human government. And the beauty is at the end of the age, the governing of humans during the millennium will be by the one who provided the gospel through his blood. He'll be at the top of worldwide government. I'll give you this. Stand to your feet so you'll know I'm actually done. 
if you can just catch your breath for a moment and disengage from this just incessant political venom, heat, and madness in our world right now and just go to the end of the age and cross the ocean and go to this city called Jerusalem. And I want you to picture a throne there. And then I want you to pull in a little bit closer in your mind's eye to the best of your sanctified imagination. Look on that throne. There is the king of all the ages. He's got nail prints in his hands. And with those wounds, from those wounds flowed blood that purchased the entire created order. The world is his. The earth is his and the fullness thereof. And that king knows your name. He loves you. He gave himself for you. He's going to walk out the door with you tonight. We bless your holy name, Jesus. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. Amen. God bless you.